This morning I want to continue in the series that we've been on, and we're in our fifth of seven churches of the letters of Jesus to the churches of the day, and this is found in uh, the book of Revelation. We're going to talk today about the church of Sardis, and we're going to see here in this letter from Jesus that he is looking for authentic and true Christians that aren't in name only. That's what we're going to find. That's what we're going to talk about when it comes to the church of Sardis. In all, this, in all of these letters, we've see, we see Jesus having the ability to see through the clutter of life, to see through the clutter and all of the, the stuff that would maybe seem obvious to the natural eyes as to what's really going on. But Jesus sees through the natural into the supernatural, into the inner nature of a man and the inner nature of a church to see them for what they really are. And, uh, and that's good. It is good that we serve a God that can do that. Amen? Wouldn't it be a shame to serve a God that doesn't see? Wouldn't it be a shame to serve a God that doesn't care enough to tell you? Rip, you're on the wrong side, man. You're supposed to be over here. Don't you know that? You're, you're messing me up. I, Rick, I just want you to know that. You're, you're <laughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> but it's important that we recognize that Jesus has the ability to see things, and we should be thankful for that. You know, I know that we go through these letters, and, and I can understand and I can see that some of the heaviness of these letters, because they're hard letters. It, it is hard teaching what Jesus is saying, but he's giving it to us because he loves us so much. Because he does see, and because he does con is concerned about us, he wants us to know truth. Amen? And so truth comes in, in the only form it can come in straightforward. It just comes right at you. <laughs> you can duck and hide, but truth comes right at you. And, uh, and that's, that's what these letters are about, and that's why I really enjoy this series. I, I've, I'm enjoying this. I'm getting a lot out of it because the Lord is working on my heart, and I'm seeing some things in me that aren't so good. And so I'm asking the Lord to remove those things from me. And I would hope that maybe this church could pick up on some of these things as well because, uh, because we're, we see some things here. All right. Jesus is qualified to be the perfect judge. Just so you know that. He is qualified to be speaking the things that he speaks. Let's look and see what he says. Open your book with me. Open your Bible with me. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They, they will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge them before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so what's the address of the church? The address to the church is to the angel of the church of Sardis. Now, like we've said before, this letter is giving to leadership and giving to all that are part of that church. That is you and I. So we're sharing the message. Let's talk a little bit about Sardis. 
Sardis, at the time that Jesus spoke these words to John, the city of Sardis had already peaked and was on its way down. This was a city that had had its heyday and was in a, in a state of decline, spiritually and even financially. But yet, it was still wealthy. It was positioned at the junction of several important roads and trade routes, which money flowed through on a regular basis. It was on the Roman road that led from the seacoast into the inner parts of Asia Minor. So it was right in a thoroughfare of all these cities, all these churches were on this, the trade route. But it was um, clearly an important city when it came to commerce and trade. But it was a little different maybe than the church we talked about last week in Thyatira because Thyatira was a church that was a labor union church. In other words, there was manufacturing going on in that city. The city of Sardis was not known for manufacturing. The city of Sardis was known for its um, middlemen, if you will. In other words, they just transacted... Uh, transactions and they made money on the on the on the transaction selling. So, in all honesty, they had easy money. Uh, we all know that the person making the product, we know the person manufacturing the product, goes to a lot of work and effort to manufacture the product. And it doesn't seem right sometimes that the middleman or the distributor, uh, the worst person just doing the transaction, makes as much or more than the manufacturer. But in many ways, it happens that way. Sardis was known for that. They were a wealthy city, but most of their money came easy to them, which is significant, as we will see a little bit later. According to uh, one of the researches I read, it says this. It says, It is of interest to note that the first coinage ever to be minted in Asia Minor was minted in Sardis in the days of Corosis. These roughly formed electrum staters, or coins, were the beginning of money in the modern sense of the term. Sardis was the place where modern, modern money was born. Interesting to know that. See, when you're, in an, when you're in an agricultural society, a lot of bartering takes place. I'll give you a chicken, you give me a pig. But if you aren't in an agricultural location, if you are in a city location, you don't have the things to barter with, so they came up with money. I give you this coin, you give me that article. And all of a sudden, there's value placed on that coin. That was the birthplace of money. Interesting to note, isn't it? Sardis was also known for its softness and luxury. It had a well-deserved reputation for apathy and immorality. There was a large and stately temple to the mother, mother goddess Sybil with 60-foot high and 6-foot in diameter columns, kind of like some of the other temples that we'd seen, huge structures of stone. This goddess was worshipped with all kinds of sexual impurity and immorality. Again, we see, we see sin. The combination of easy money and a loose moral environment made the people of Sardis notoriously soft and loving of all the pleasures that money afforded. Because money was re relatively easy to come by, it was relatively easily spent. Does that make sense? Easy come, easy go. How many ever recognize that in your life? When you work hard for something, all of a sudden what you have uh, is not so easily spent, is it? There's a lesson there. According, to, again, to Barclay, the researcher that I was reading, the great characteristics of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, or even on the lips of people that weren't Christians, Sardis was a name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose-living notoriously pleasure and luxury living 
Sardis was known as the city of decadence. It was a place that a lot of uh, freedoms were overindulged and a lot of people were taken advantage of. It was really not a very good city. The city was strategically located on top of a 1,500-foot plateau that provided a strong defensive position from attackers. And its, stiff, its steep cliffs were almost impossible to scale. But yet, even so, it had been conquered twice before. And uh, the reason it was conquered is given by John Wolverd. He reports, although the situation of the city was ideal for defense, as it stood high above the valley of Hermas and was surrounded by deep cliffs, almost impossible to scale, Sardis had twice before fallen because of overconfidence and a failure to watch. Key words, and we're going to come back to that. In 549 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus had ended the rule of Carosis by scaling the cliffs under the cover of darkness. In 214 B.C., the armies of Antichos the Great captured the city by the same method. So here we have a city that's established in a very strategic location, 1,500 feet higher above anything surrounding it, which is a good place to be. It's always good to be higher than lower, right? Especially in a fight situation. And they were. But the point is that even because of its strategic strength, it had some innate weaknesses because people were overconfident in the surroundings. Because they were so high, the guards on the inner side of the city felt, well, I don't need the guard tonight. I can, sl I can slack off. I can do what I want to do because who's going who's to scale the wall? But because they were not paying attention, because they were not doing their job, the walls were scaled, and the city was defeated twice. I see some spiritual significance in that for me and for you because we might have all the strength around us that we think we're invincible. But if I'm not watching, if I'm not listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, if I'm not ever on guard for the attack of the enemy, watch out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 through 12, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. For those overconfident, mature Christians that said, hey, I've been there, done that, I've got the T-shirt, Nothing's gonna, no, no temptation's going to overcome me. Okay, I appreciate your confidence. And that's okay, but just be careful because the city fell because of overconfidence. None of us are beyond the reach of the temptations of the enemy, standing in our own strength. Standing in our own ability, the devil will eat my lunch. But when I stand on guard with the Holy Spirit, and when I'm tuning in to what he's saying, when he says, Mike, be careful, hey, don't do that, don't do this, do this, do that. When I'm listening and, and listening and doing what he's asking me to do, now I'm invincible because I have him as my guard. And I'm paying attention, and I'm, and I'm not asleep at the wheel. Amen? What's the description of Christ? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Doesn't seem like much there, does it? But the number of seven in biblical terms is a number of completion. The fact that Jesus is describing himself holding the seven spirits and the seven stars indicates that he is, he is complete in his authority. He's complete in his understanding. 
He's complete in his fulfillment. There is nothing lacking in Jesus. He is the complete package. That's it. That's what he is. There's nothing here that is not completed in Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God. And the fact that he mentions the seven stars indicates that he's also the fulfillment of the churches because the seven stars represented the churches. So as a church is resting in Jesus fully, he is also the complete fullness for the churches. He's completed himself because he's in the seven spirits of God. But being that he's holding the seven stars, meaning he's holding the seven churches, meaning he's holding me and you. And if I, complete, if I completely trust in him, then I will have his completeness and I will have his fullness. We'll see a little bit more of significance of this completion a little bit later, uh, concept of completion when we talk about the commands of Jesus. So hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that. What's the condition of the church? No, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. As always, Jesus knows the deeds and the actions of the churches. He knows me, and he knows you. There is nothing hidden from the eyes of Jesus, including my motivations, including the church's motivations. He knows that. Let's just recognize that. Jesus sees the reputation of the church as being alive. It's a good reputation. Um, if Jesus was just a man, and he couldn't see beyond that, I guess he would look at it and say, it's a good church. It's a good city. It's a good, it's a good church in a bad city. Now we're talking about the church of Sardis. We're not talking about the city. We're talking about the church. Good church in a bad city. But Jesus, with him, reputations are easily seen through. In the case of this church in Sardis, the reputation was alive, but in reality, what Jesus saw was dead. Bible teacher Vance Havner says this about this statement. We are not to get the impression that Sardis, the church of Sardis, was a defunct affair with the building a wreck, the members scattered, the pastor ready to resign. It was a busy church with meetings every night, committees galore, wheels within wheels, promotion and publicity, something going on all the time. It had a reputation of being alive, wide awake, going concerned. That's the, that's the church. It wasn't a down and out church. It was moving and shaking from the outside. So the outward sign of a healthy church can be altogether different from what the inward sign that Jesus sees. Now that makes me sit up and think a little bit. That brings a little bit of concern in my life, a little bit of a reason to say, wow, I better listen here what Jesus is talking about. I better not just take the obvious. I better dig in here and find out really what he's talking about. The question I ask myself this week, when Jesus looks at Center Point Assembly, does he see a live or a dead church? What's he see? When Jesus looks at Mike Way, is he seeing a live man or a dead man? When he looks at you personally, what's he seeing in your life? Is he seeing a live? Is he seeing a reputation of life? Or is he seeing the reality of death? These are good questions. Don't be offended by these kind of questions. Don't be offended by this because nobody's judging anybody here. Nobody's saying you're alive or dead. I'm not saying anything. I'm just, I'm just wondering what Jesus sees when he looks at me and when he looks at this church. These are good inventory-type questions that we should ask ourselves on a regular basis. Who really are we? Who are we really doing? What are we really doing to prove 
is that reputation true or false? See, people think in terms of reputation. Jesus thinks in terms of reality. And reality is the key here because we're going to be measured and judged in our reality, not in our reputation. When we stand before Jesus, he's not going to say, what was your reputation? He's going to say, who are you? Who are you? And what did you do with my son, Jesus? Not, what did people think about you? What was your reputation in the community? That will not come up. That's not one of the questions you're going to be asked. So we shouldn't be concerned necessarily about our reputation necessarily. We should be more concerned about the reality of life. One writer says this, Don't confuse activity with anointing. Don't confuse activity with anointing. Activity does not indicate spiritual life. Activity does not indicate spiritual life. So how does a church die? In that regard, how does a spiritual person die? What's the process? Well, first of all, they get inwardly focused on themselves instead of being outwardly focused on the needs of others. They stop caring about the lost and start caring about themselves. That's the first indication of death or that the dying process has happened. When I start looking inwardly at myself more there than at the outward needs of others, I'm starting to die. A reputation of being alive is not the measure of true spiritual character in a church or a person. The reputation is not the measure. Reputation looks backwards at, one, at what once was. Reputation, understand, always look backwards. Whereas reality examines the moment in which we are living to see what we truly are. When I look at a reputation, I'm looking backwards to what you were, what I was. I was a great athlete. Don't laugh. Jenna currently is a great athlete. There's a difference here because my reputation or what I believe may or not be true. But when I look at a person's life today and see the fruit of her, of her athleticism, I see a great athlete. Reality is... Today, I'm measuring her as a great athlete. My reputation says I was a great athlete. True or not? See, something dead or dying indicates that there must have been life at one time. Something can't die if it didn't already live. Right? So there was life. There was a moment of life for this church of Sardis. Otherwise, it couldn't have died. Something that's, that doesn't have life, this chair, this fabric, it never had life, so it's not dead. It's just inanimate. It, it never had a past. Being dead, being dead, hear me, this is important. Being dead indicates there is no struggle, no fight, no persecution. See, it wasn't that the church in Sardis was losing the battle. No, according to what Jesus saw, they already lost the battle. A dead body has lost the battle and the fight is over unless something supernatural happens. And we'll get back to that at the end of the sermon. But right now, the church of Sardis was dead. See, in this letter, Jesus isn't is not encouraging the believers in Sardis to stand against persecution or stand against false teaching. We don't see any of that in this letter. 
probably because there simply wasn't a danger of these things in Sardis. Being dead, the church in Sardis presented no significant threat to Satan. Thus, it wasn't worth attacking. Hear me. Very important that we understand that concept. If I'm dead, I'm not going to be attacked. Understand Satan has limited resources. He only has a, set, a certain set of, of elements that he can use in his warfare against us. He is unlimited. I'm sorry. He is limited in his ability. God, on the other hand, is unlimited in his. Because God is the creator. Okay? So now if Satan is limited, he has to be strategic with his attacks. The old saying goes, why kick a sleeping dog? You know, if the dog's asleep, don't kick it. If you don't want to get bit, don't kick it. All right? Well, that's kind of Satan's strategy on dead Christians or on dead churches. If it's already dead, why bother it? Let it go along its merry way. Let it go along being it's all its programs, living, doing, all the things that it's, that it's thinking it's okay in. Let it go. If it's dead, it's going to be of no value, no eternal value. Obviously, if, that's, if I'm in one of those churches or if I'm one of those people that are just self-deceived in my actions, I can be very happy because I'm, so, I'm, doing, I'm doing so much for God. I am so successful for God. But if Jesus is saying, Mike, but you're missing the most important thing, then what am I really doing? Uh, here is, I think, one of the most sobering passages in all Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many, did you hear that? Many, not some. Scary, scary. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's a, that's a sobering scripture, isn't it? It's one to think about. It's one to ponder a little bit. One to say, Lord, am I part of that many? Am I? See, Satan's arsenal of evil, though very significant, is limited, whereas God's is not. Therefore, where Satan sees the church to be ineffective already, he wisely chooses to place his attention elsewhere, leaving the dead lying in their death. An active church may seemingly be alive in its busyness of its church functions but can be spiritually dead and eternally non-productive. And understand that if Jesus sees that, so does the enemy. How do I know if I'm a live church or a dead church? How do I know if I'm a live person or a dead person? Well, we're going to answer that in a minute. But understand that a church or a person with apparent no conflict, no persecution, no stress, no strife, even though it may appear to be very successful, in all honesty, may be dead as a doornail because there is no satanic attack. 
against it. Now, I'm not saying here that we're to look for problems. Understand what I'm saying. There are seasons, thank God there are seasons of peace and rest where God gives us peace and rest and joy and we can say, God, thank you. Thank you for this reprieve. Thank you that we can enjoy life. Thank you, Lord, that you have things under control and that we can have a peaceful life. I'm, that's good. And when you're in, if you are in one of those times, I'm, what I'm not saying is go look for a problem. I'm not saying go look for stress because it will find you soon enough anyways. I'm just saying that if you are, if, you're, if your life is, is known for that, if this church is known for that, I'm just saying look a little deeper and say, maybe I'm dead. And maybe the devil's not attacking me because he doesn't want to wake me up. The rebuke of Jesus, it's really simple. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead Jesus sees through reputation and rebukes the church in Sardis for being spiritually dead. What's the command? The command from Jesus, look at verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. What was Jesus' command? Wake up. Wake up, church. Wake up, people. Know the difference between reality and reputation. Know reality before it's too late. This church in Sardis was lulled into a spiritual death walk by its comfortable, easy living mentality. And Jesus was giving them a wake-up call before he gives them his final judgment. He says that he finds their deeds unfinished, unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember the saying, it's not how one starts, it's how one finishes. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Because I can be started down the wrong path and I can get finished on the right path and I'm good. Or I can get started on the wrong right path and fall off to the wrong path and I'm not so good. It's not how one starts, it's how one finishes. It's obvious here that this church started many things but finished very few. Remember, we just said before that Jesus is talking, he described himself in, is a God of completeness. He, he who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the number, indi- the number seven indicates completeness. Jesus is all about completing what he starts. He leaves nothing unfinished. And rest assured that his attention for me and for you and for this church is to finish the job. He is not here to self-start something and then let it die off. That's not his plan. His plan is to complete this church, complete the mission and the purpose of this church, and the mission and purpose of you as an individual. Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. This is Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's who we are, folks. That's who we are. We are a church of completion because we're following Christ. And we're not going to let our reputation of aliveness cloud the reality of who we are and what we're doing. Therefore, Jesus is telling the church to remember what it is you started. Go back to the basics of what you heard and hold fast to it. It reminds me of the encouragement Paul gave to Timothy about remembering Timothy's spiritual foundation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5-6. through 6. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your, mother, your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. 
For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Sometimes spiritual fervor can wane. Sometimes we can just get tired. Sometimes we can just burn out because we're doing too much on our own effort. Paul is telling his spiritual son, Timothy, Timothy, stop. Remember your foundation. Remember what you learned as a young boy and remember the strength in that. And then fan that flame into reality today. Don't can, Stop doing it on your own, Timothy. Stop doing it in yourself, but go back to your foundation. Go back to what you once were. Hold fast to that and fan that little ember into a full flame again and then let me, let me, Jesus, let me, the Holy Spirit, let me complete you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for that. I need that. I need that because there's many times where I've been tired and you've been tired. You've been burned out. Ricky, I know you've been tired, man. But hang in there. Fan that flame. Amen. Rip, you've been tired. Hang in there, man. Fan the flame. Yeah. Remember, God's always, always, always giving us time to repent and get our lives back on track with him through the convicting and changing power of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is the key word. Repentance is the key to life. Repentance is the key for our supernatural rebirth. Something that was dead can be resurrected if there is a heart of true repentance and turning away from death. Repentance is the key to life. You can be dead right now, but you can say, you know, Father... I feel the spark. Holy Spirit, I feel your convicting presence. Therefore, I am going to repent. And when you repent, meaning say, I'm sorry, and go the other direction, what that means is life enters your life again. Supernaturally, what was once dead becomes alive. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He goes on with the consequence of disobedience. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Jesus is calling the church in Sardis to wake up, to realize they are spiritually dead, and to repent in order to have new life. If they don't, God's still coming back. That doesn't change God's schedule of events. He's still coming back, and you won't know when he comes. He's still coming back. He says to them, I will come like a thief, and they will not be ready to defend themselves coming as a thief is not a good thing. So be ready. Wake up. Repent. How does this apply to us today? What's the application we can get from this? Wow. This is a huge wake-up call for the Church of America. This is a huge wake-up call for the 21st century church. This is a huge wake-up call for Center Point Assembly. This is a huge wake-up call for Mike Way. Wake up. Remember the foundational teaching I once had. I once loved the Lord with all my heart. I can remember when I, when I became saved. I can remember that moment when I was 12 years old and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and I spoke in tongues for the first time. I can remember I couldn't stop speaking in tongues until I got in my mom and dad's car. I can remember to this day praying at that altar down at Upright Street. I can remember walking out that church. I can remember walking across that yard. I can remember getting in that car and I couldn't speak English. I remember that passion. Wake up, Mike. Get it back. Get it back. 
That's what I want in you. That's what I want in this church. Wake up. See, this is the call of the hour. I was talking to Michael Cohen, and uh, man, I'll tell you what, if you're not watching Israel, if you're not watching what's going on in the Middle East, you're not, you're, you're, you're not alive. Come on, folks, let's wake up. We are in the last days. I know you've heard it said many, many times. I can remember being said when I was a boy. But I'm telling you, I'm 30, 40 years closer than I was then. So that much for a fact. I'm that much closer to the end day. So wake up. See what's going on around us. And let's be the church that's alive. Let's not be the church resting on our reputation. Let's be the church alive in Charlevoix. Let's be the church that is striving forward. Let us not be lulled into the deception of of reputation. Good or bad? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The fact of the matter is, whether Jesus comes back today or he comes back 30 years from now, I am living in my last day. I have no idea if I have the next breath, and neither do you. And if you don't live with that kind of urgency, can I just tell you, you're silly. Can I just tell you that you're not wise? If you think that you have a guarantee for tomorrow because you're 30 years old, can I tell you that happens every day. People are dying younger than you. If you don't see that, if you don't feel that convicting presence of the Holy Spirit right now saying, wake up! This is not about reputation, it's about reality. If you don't see that in your heart right now, you're a fool. I love you. I really do. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it. What's the promise to overcomers? Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with, with, with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. See, this passage indicates that there are some in the church of Sardis that haven't soiled their garments. There are some in, Salavois, in, in, in Center Point Assembly that have not soiled their garments. To understand that. But that doesn't mean you, lull, that doesn't mean you, you, you rest on your laurels either. <laughs> that doesn't mean that we say, my, soiled, my, my garments are clean. Remember what we said. The church, the city was situated high in the hill thinking I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm defenseless or I'm, in, I'm indivisible. Remember that city? Remember that man who thought more of himself than he should? Okay, there are some that, are, that the clothes are white, and that's awesome, but keep believing, keep pressing in. Be victorious in that. The question for us is, who are these people, and who are they in our church, and who are they that has the reputation of alive and yet are still alive? What a blessing to have the reputation and still be alive. You know, that can happen, you know. That can happen. And there are those here I know that have it, and there are those that are pursuing it, and that's awesome. So the question is, I asked a while ago, how does one know if you're dead or alive? How do you know? How do you really know? Well, it's kind of a complicated question and deserves some thought. Some may say it's obvious. Well, if I'm breathing, I'm alive. Well, that's the way man looks. Yes, I'm alive. But what's my spirit condition? Jesus looks always deeper than the physical. He looks at the spiritual life. 
Actually, the answer is quite simple. Spiritual life or spiritual death is measured by the fruit that is produced in the person or the church. A dead person or a dead church produces dead fruit or basically produces no fruit. A person that's alive produces a fruit that's living and that living fruit produces more life which produces more life which is produces more life and that is a living person. See, I am not an island. When I speak to people, life speaks through me into them and then when, when they catch the life of Jesus Christ in them they speak life into somebody else and when they speak life into somebody else the cycle continues and we're replicating ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit that's the sign of a living person by their fruit a tree you examine a tree the tree may have leaves it may look fine if it's an apple tree there better be apples on the ground there better be apples on the ground when I'm, if I'm professing to be a Christian man, there better be spiritual fruit on the ground. There better be something on the ground that shows that I'm alive. Those apples that fall on the ground are giving life to more apple trees or giving life to the deer that eat those apples that lay in the ground. When I have spiritual fruit laying around my life, and you know what? You'll know a man long enough. If you talk to a man long enough, you'll know his fruit. Out of the heart speaketh the mouth. And you'll know if you spend around time around a Christian man, before long, the discussion's going to go to Christ. Before long, it's going to go to something that's going to show you he's a spiritual man and you're going to see fruit in his life. That's a living Christian. Not a man that has a reputation of being a living Christian and you talk to him and he never talks about God. But he has a great reputation. But he never mentions God. He never mentions anything about you. He never challenges you. If he's really your friend and if he's really a spiritual man, then sooner or later he's going to challenge you with a godly word. Sooner or later, I'm going to be challenged by a Christian man because I know there's fruit in their life. I know they're alive. Here's some other examples. There's a, there's a hunger for holiness, to be pure before God. Now, I've got a lot of scriptures here because we're a Bible church, and I'm going to read some scriptures here because I want you to know this is not my idea. There's a hunger for holiness, to be pure before God. This is one of the proofs of being alive. Romans chapter 6, verse 19 through 23. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as, as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What, here's, listen to this question. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. That's fruit. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalms chapter 119. 176 verses. We're going to read them all. No, I'm only kidding. But I encourage you to go home today, open up your Bible to Psalms 119, and read all 176 verses. Here's one. 129, verse 133. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, 
longing for your commands. Turn me and have mercy on me as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. And then verse 134, redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. Hunger for holiness tells me you're alive. Hunger for holiness. Go back and read it. You'll see many, many, many examples of hunger for holiness in verse in chapter 119 of Psalms. Number, there's another one. Uh, Jackie, you can come and if you can start playing if you want to as we start red, wrapping up. There's an increased desire to share what God has done for me. Psalm 166, verse 16 and 17. Come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. <laughs> I cried out with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If you're alive, you're going to share your life with somebody. You're not going to say, oh, it's religion, it's personal. Nonsense. It's not personal. It's life. If you love your neighbor, you're going to share life with them. It's not personal. It's about sharing what you are. That's life. If you're dead, you'll say, it's personal. Number three, our actions and our words and actions betrays the true condition of the heart. Luke six forty three and forty five. No good true tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Another, another example, our desire should be to do good for people. Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Another, another evidence of life, our choices change from living for worldly pleasures to living for godly pleasures, and it's evident. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And then skipping down to verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Your choices, your desires will change when you're alive. The overall condition of a person changes as the fruit of the Spirit takes precedence. And we learn to walk and keep and step with the Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's life. Keeping in step with the Spirit is proving that you're a living Christian man, not a man with a reputation. 
Now this list could go on and on between the differences between life and death. And we don't have time to read all the passages of God's Word. But let me tell you one thing that's so interesting about everything we've studied so far. The Word always substantiates the Word. Now we're in the book of Revelation. This is the end of the book. But do you know that it goes back and it substantiates what the first page was written in the book? It's the same thing. The Bible supports the Bible. So what Jesus said to, the, to John at the end of time of the Bible substantiates everything that was written before that. Why? Because it's living. Because it's alive. Because God wrote it. Oh, thank you, Jesus. This morning, oh, this morning, this, if you have a reputation for being a Christian, but yet, if Jesus sees you as dead, there's a different reality for you. There is a different opportunity for you this morning. The problem here is that a person can go through life self-deceived. Self-deceived. They can be looking at themselves in a the mirror and thinking, man, I am one awesome dude. I am one awesome Christian. But can I just say this morning, can I just in all love say, open your eyes, wake up, ask what the Lord is seeing in your life, and can you make a change? Can we make a change? Wow. See, if I go through life looking for comfort, I'll find it. I'll find it. But I may not be productive for the, for the, for the kingdom. But believe me, if I go down looking to be productive for the kingdom, I'm going to find stress. I'm going to find strife. So don't be deceived when it comes to your life. If you're working for the kingdom, if you're one of those that haven't soiled your garments, your life is not going to be easy. It's going to be full of stress because the enemy is attacking you. He's not giving up. He's not giving up. That's a condition. That's a sign of life. Don't be fooled. Don't say, well, stop doing what you're doing and you'll be happier. No, you won't. That's a devil telling you not to be productive. Hanging in there. If, you're, if there's stress in your life, and if you know you're following Jesus and, you, and you're battling, it's okay. It's okay. It shows life. It shows life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you took the time to write us a letter. that you took the time to care about me, that you take the time today to care about me. I'm so, I'm so thankful for that. So God, I pray right now that our spiritual eyes would be opened. Lord, I pray that our blinders would be taken off and that we would see ourselves the way you see us. And Lord, for those that see ourselves here this morning with a little bit of soil on our garments, do, do we know, do, do we know that, that, that you have an opportunity to clean that? You have an opportunity to give us unsoiled garments again because you'll give us new life. So this morning, as you are examining your heart, and if you may have some soil on your garments, don't give up. Don't give up. Just recognize that. And recognize who can clean it. And recognize who can give you new life. So this morning, as all eyes are closed, 
and you're looking at your life, if you have any soil in your garments, do you want it clean? If you do, just lift up your hand. Just say, thank you, Jesus. I see the hands. I see them. That's good. Lord, I have soil in my life. I need it cleaned up. I just ask you, Jesus, that you would just be there, and I would be, I would be so attuned to you, Lord, that my reputation would be that I'm alive, and would my reality would be that I'm alive. I want both, God. I want both. And I can have both as I seek you and as I press in throughout this day and more importantly throughout this week. This is not just a Sunday morning message. This is a week. This is a life message. This is a message that goes through my lifetime, God, that I'm constantly seeking you. I'm constantly, Lord, asking you to measure my life according to reality, not according to reputation. God, I thank you. I thank you for freedom. I thank you for mercy. I thank you for grace. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day today as you go. Just know that the Lord's on your side and know that that you can be victorious. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.